I don't know about you, I don't often think this way, but you ever stop and think about how the impact small actions can have in your life? The small things that you do that they, you know, I, I think often we don't think about that. I mean, and the reason I think we don't think about it is because we hear about words like impact and change the world and, you know, all these big things. I mean, we're facing another election season, God help us. And I mean, did you know this is the most important election of your lifetime? Just like the one two years ago, just like the one two years before that and two years before that. And two, I mean, it's just like, you know, we are constantly bombarded with sensational language, aren't we? I mean, just we need, think bigger, you know? And when I'm confronted with that, I'm, I'm kind of in a phase of life where I just kind of turn the TV off, you know? I mean, I'm just get tired of hearing it because I know what can happen to us when we're constantly facing, you know, bigger, do better, do bigger, do better, because it can breed fear. It can breed anxiety and sometimes cynicism. <laughs> I recognize that in me. And overwhelming emotions to the point where we kind of live into this idea that if I don't do something grand, if I don't do something big, if I'm not involved in something, you know, that's massive, then it has no value. It can't be worth doing. After all, we know the expression, go big or there you go right there. We all know it. And what does that teach us? It tells you, be bold, be brave, take big risk. The idea is that you either win big or you lose big. There's no in between. So, you know, jump right in. But really, I mean, is that really it? Is that how it has to be? You guys are probably wiser. You know it's not that way. Of course not. But sometimes we can forget that faithful consistency even in the small things, can often bring about big changes, big results. For example, sorry to do this to you, exercise. I know, you know, there's no amens on this one. But we assume that in order to get real results in exercise, what do we have to do? We have to go big or go home. I mean, I was a part of a thing several years ago where it was six days a week, a 45-minute workout class, and you download the MyFitnessPal app because you're tracking everything that you put into your body. Because if you want change, if you want real significant change, you got to go big because just doing little things won't matter. Really? Well, according to one website I read that just walking one mile a day, one mile can have tremendous health benefits. For example, did you know that just walking one mile a day can reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease? It can reduce the risk of certain cancers. It can, uh, let's see, what does it say? Decrease blood pressure, decrease bad cholesterol, and increase good cholesterol. It can strengthen your legs. It can decrease joint pain. It can reduce stress and anxiety. It can boost your mood and your confidence and your self-esteem. It can improve cognitive function and working memory. Well, look at that. And that's just one mile a day. Doesn't say you have to run a marathon. Amen. That's right, Kim. I'm with you. Amen. You know, and you think about one mile a day. If you did that every day, 365 days, you know, in a year, you could basically walk to Kansas City and back with that many miles. Or you could walk from here to Chicago. I mean, isn't that crazy? Or one thing I read said, if you just walk an extra five minutes a day in a year, you'd walk an extra 100 miles. 
That's just five minutes. Who doesn't have five minutes? That's crazy, isn't it? Or what about reading? Who are my readers in the room? Let's see those hands. Amen. I love to read. Sometimes we think I don't have time to read a book. It's just too overwhelming. Did you know that if you read just 20 minutes a day, that in a year you could read around 18 books in just 20 minutes a day? Now, if I were to look at you and say, you need to read 18 books in the next 12 months, most of you'd go, you're out of your mind, crazy pastor, get out of here. 20 minutes a day. Well, that's more manageable, isn't it? You win trivia too. That's exactly right. Sit by the winning team. What about waking up? Waking up? I don't like this one. But you know, if you wake up just five minutes earlier every day, it says that you could gain 390 additional waking hours in a year. I prefer to see it the other way. If I sleep in an extra five minutes, I gain 390 sleeping hours in the year. (laughs) This next one's offensive. I'm sorry. Coffee drinkers. You know, this is obviously old numbers because it says if you spend $5 on coffee, anybody spent $5 on coffee at Starbucks lately? No, it's more like six and seven. But you realize in a year, if you, if you did that every day in a year, you've spent $1,800 on coffee. And in five years, you've spent just less than $10,000. And in 20 years, it's like $36,500 to which somebody in the first service said, that's a down payment. Yeah, it is. Small things matter. And being faithful in the small things really can be what has huge impact over time. Now, you may be able to see where we're going with this. We've been in this series in prayer that we've called, Are You There, God? Where every week we're just kind of looking at people or stories in the Bible to see who prayed and how they prayed. And really, what can we learn from, from their lives of prayer? And today we turn our attention to, probably for most of you, is a very familiar story in the Old Testament I threatened Pearl Becker to come up here and and speak this one with me because Amy told me this is her favorite story in the Bible. And I know Amy hates that because it's in the Old Testament, you know, but, you know, it's the story of a man named Daniel. And we're going to dive into Daniel's story and look and see what do we see about Daniel? What can he show us about prayer? We find his story in the book that's actually named after him, Daniel. Daniel's an interesting guy. He was a young man, probably in his teen years, when Israel, uh, or Judah was invaded and they were taken exile in, from Israel into Babylon. He was a prophet. He was a man of great character. He was well trusted by the king. But at the point of the story today, he's kind of lived a little bit, well, 70 years almost, in the exile. And he's almost around 80 years old or early 80s at this point. And let's look and see what happens to Daniel. We read in chapter 6, it says, It pleased Darius, Darius is the king, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them. One of these administrators was Daniel. Pretty significant thing, right? I mean, he's, he's got the ear of the king. It says the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not have to suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So this is no slouch. This guy is like, you know, sharp, smart, character, you know, hardworking, all these things can be trusted. Says that this, though, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. 
in his conduct in, of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. We see what's happening right away, right? They're jealous. They don't like this guy. They don't like that he's got the, you know, he's the king's best friend and best administrator. And so they're like, we've got to do something. But they have a problem. This guy's of such great character. They can't find anything against him. I mean, think about that. This guy is a man of such character. They couldn't find anything. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Wow. So, so finally these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Interesting. Not only was he a man of great character, he was a man of great faith. So known for his faith, they knew that if we're going to trip him up, it's going to be with his faith. Fast forward a bit, we find these jealous guys conspiring and convincing the king to pass a law that can't be changed, that for the next 30 days you can only pray to the king. You can't pray to anything else, anyone else, any other God for 30 days. And if you do, you're going to be killed. I just love how the Old Testament, a lot of these kings are such dupes, aren't they? I mean, they're just, what is wrong? Why are they so easily persuaded by these individuals? Who knows? But he did. He passes this law and there it is. And it says, we pick it up and it says, now when Daniel learned that this decree had been published, he ran away screaming and crying. He stopped praying completely. No, says he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God, for help. What happened? These guys catch him in the act. And then, of course, like little bitty baby tattletales, what do they do? They run off to the king. Oh, king, they said, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. Now, the king loved Daniel. Daniel was very trusted. He was his right-hand man, and it upset him that he'd been, you know, duped this way. And so he tries to save Daniel, but he can't. That wall, law was so well written. So the king finally just looks at the guy and says, okay, I guess we have no choice but to throw him in the lion's den. So the king says to Daniel, while they're doing this, he says, may your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Now, we continue the story. We read that the king is really upset over this. He does not like what he's had to do. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. And the next morning, he runs out towards the lion's den. And it says, when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions they have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. Think about this for just a moment. And this time, in this day and age, guilt and innocence was determined by what happened to you. I mean, what would you expect if you throw a guy in a lion's den? It's going to be killed, right? Well, something miraculous happened. And so because it didn't happen, 
there was a, an air of innocence now. He must be innocent because the lions didn't kill him. So the king then was overjoyed, gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. I told him in the first service, this is an example. Be careful who you marry. It matters. You'll find yourself in a lion's den if you're not careful. It says, and before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. You see, if there was any question, were these lions drugged by the king? Nope. Were these lions fake lions? Nope. They were real. The next meal that gets tossed in there, they're devoured. They were done. And then it says, the king wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heaven and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. A new king comes in and Daniel still has favor. Cyrus, the Persian. Bible has the best stories, doesn't it? I mean, the Bible really does have the best stories. And Daniel is such a great example for us. He's not just mentioned in the Old Testament. He's actually referenced in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, we get these examples of great people of faith from the Old Testament. In Hebrews eleven thirty-two, it says this. It talks about the prophets who through faith shut the mouths of lions, commended for their faith. I mean, that's talking about Daniel right there who shut the mouths of the lions, who was the recipient of that miracle in his life. And when we think about the lion's den, we might think about some great feat, some great deed that Daniel had done to, to earn this. You know, what was it that got him there? What was it that led him to be thrown into the den of lions? You know, it wasn't because he went and protested the law that had been passed. It wasn't that he had created some viral video that had went, you know, crazy on the internet. No, he didn't lead some huge movement. You know what got him there? Daily, consistent prayer. That was it. And this is what's so fascinating to me is that when you read this story, these guys who were so jealous of Daniel and wanted him gone, they knew him so well that they could have the king construct a law targeted so specific to the prayer life of Daniel. I mean, it even says it was 30 days. I mean, they didn't even need long. They knew Daniel's faith. They knew if Daniel had a vulnerability, they knew it would be his faith. And when faced with the possibility of not praying or dying, they thought Daniel would rather die than not be able to pray. All he had to do was abstain from prayer for 30 days. That's it. Now, I would love to you to, to tell you, and I would have done the same thing. I don't know. I don't know. What would you have done? I mean, in those moments, it's easy for us to kind of, you know, justify. It's just 30 days. I'm worth more alive than dead. I mean, I've got a greater ministry if I'm alive than if I'm dead. God will understand, and yet something is different in Daniel. We don't see him rationalizing. We don't see him justifying. What do we see? He says he just went and did what he had always done. 
He went to the room. He opened the windows, which was his practice. He knelt down and he prayed. Why did he do that? Daniel's an incredible guy to me because there's something about Daniel. Because he wasn't a citizen of Babylon. He was an exile. His citizenship was with his home country, Judah. That's where he, his heart was, why he's praying towards Jerusalem. He, he knew that his existence was always walking a line between the empire and the promised land. But he never forgot who he was or where his true citizenship was. He never forgot. He knew where he belonged. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't work for the betterment of the kingdom of Babylon, because he did. I mean, he had heard the words of Jeremiah the prophet. We've talked about them before. Jeremiah said, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. Settle down, build houses, plant farms, settle in. Folks, you're going to be there a while, and I want you to work for the prosperity of the city. Daniel knew that. But even doing those things, he knew, but I'm a child of God. I'm part of the nation of Israel chosen by God. He was able to walk that line. You see, his prayer life to me, though, does seem a bit peculiar because we have the New Testament. And the New Testament gives us an out because the New Testament says, and when you pray, go to your closet. Oh, that's good because then nobody will know. I can just go in the closet and shut the door and it's me and God. Why not Daniel? Well, why did he pray three times a day? Why did he pray with the windows open towards Jerusalem? There's a lot of things built into his education and training that, he, that were built into it, that were ingrained within him, like Psalm 55. He knew this psalm that would say, as for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. He sees a model there and he's like, okay, I can do that. Morning, noon, evening, I'm going to pray. And as an exile, he prayed towards Jerusalem. He remembered the words when the temple was dedicated in 1 Kings 8 that describes those in exile praying. And it says, towards the land you gave their ancestors, towards the city you've chosen and the temple I've built for your name. That's the direction that they were said you to pray towards. And so Daniel's like, I can do that too. And when faced with death, when faced with opposition, Daniel did nothing different. He didn't run out into the streets and start a protest. He didn't start up praying in the middle of the street even, did he? He wasn't in their faces. He did what he did every day. He went to his room. He opened the windows and he prayed. For Daniel, it was just business as usual. What I find fascinating is he didn't run to the king and try to change the law. He didn't try to plead his case. Please make an exception for me. Daniel just prayed. Why? Why do you think Daniel just prayed? You know why? Because it's just what he did. His prayer, simple, daily, consistent prayer, was just a part of who he was and what he did. But I wonder if it's because Daniel understood something about prayer that maybe we knew at one point, maybe we didn't. Maybe it's things we need to be reminded of. Like, for Daniel, he knew that prayer was real. This wasn't a religious exercise. This wasn't something just to pass the time. This wasn't something to check off my religious to-do list. For him, prayer was important. 
It was ingrained in, in everything he did, but he also knew that prayer was powerful. We'll see why in just a moment, but he believed that when he prayed, things happened. He connected with God. He knew that, th- that this wasn't just words. It was power. He knew that prayer is the anchor of a life devoted to God, that there was something there that prayer is all about relationship and it requires faithful consistency. He knew that. I mean, I often think about, you know, this is our connection, our communication with God. I mean, and, and, and Daniel certainly believes that he can connect with the God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer of all, the sovereign, the loving, and the holy God. And he believes that, when he, that God moves when he prays. You know why? Because he believes in God. He has this incredible understanding of who he's praying to. You see, we talk a lot here about living in a flattened world. We use that expression. And what we mean by that is that we take all the wonder, all the mystery, all the mysticism out of faith, and we flatten it. And we say faith is just something you believe. Having right theology, believing the right thing, and really to get there requires no movement and no activity of God. But you see, you look at somebody like Daniel, and I know that he didn't live in a flattened world where God wasn't present. He believed God was working around him. He believed that even in exile, God was moving. And even with a law that might endanger his life, he was not unwilling to stop his praying. And in prayer, Daniel believed he could connect with the God of the universe to know his heart and connect with the movement of God in the world. I think I miss that sometimes. I think I miss realizing how much God is at work around me. The late author and pastor Eugene Peterson wrote in his book, The Contemplative Pastor, he said, the assumption of spirituality is that always God is doing something before I know it. So the task is not to get God to do something I think needs to be done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can respond to it and participate and take delight in it. That's a man who understood the movement of the transcendent, amazing creator constantly moving around us. Daniel had a God awareness, even in exile. We need a God awareness entering into dialogue with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And dialogue is what will bring us into that awareness. But there's a breakdown for us, a cultural breakdown for us. It's what I will call the curse of productivity. I say that and you probably know exactly what I'm talking about, right? I mean, if we're honest, prayer can feel like and seem like the most unproductive thing we can do, doesn't it? I mean, you can be honest here. Yes, it does. Prayer feels like, well, I'm not doing. I'm not making something happen. I'm just sitting here talking to the ceiling. And that for us, it feels unproductive. And we believe if we're not producing, then we're not progressing and we're not contributing and we're not achieving. I mean, think about that. That's true, right? We believe if we're not producing, that we're not progressing, contributing or achieving. You know what's scary about that last phrase there and those three words about productivity? I like to play around with AI a little bit, chat GPT, just to see what questions I can ask and see what it'll spit out. 
I went to ChatGTP. I went to the AI and I put in that phrase. I said, if we aren't producing, we aren't what? And it shot back, progressing, contributing, achieving. That's what the computer says. That's what the artificial intelligence tells us, that if we aren't producing, then something must be wrong. This is what gives me confidence in humanity because the AI will never understand this, that there's something greater and better than producing and achieving. Our highest value can seem to be productivity and control, and it can seem like there are things in this world that we can do without prayer. And in a world of microwaves and instant potatoes and everything, all the information in the world available at our fingertips, prayer can seem so counterintuitive. But prayer is not about productivity. It's about relating to God, being in that point of connection where heaven meets earth, having our eyes opened to the movement of the Holy Spirit around us. Does that sound unproductive to you? It doesn't to me. And we can't get there. We'll never get there with drive-by praying, just popping in and out. You look at Daniel and what do you see? You see consistency. You see faithfulness. You see this is what I'm going to do. Why? Why three times a day? In our conversations, Amy and I have talked, we, I mentioned last week how we kind of grew up in this idea that if you didn't write original words, if you didn't have original words to pray, it didn't matter. You know, it didn't count. You're supposed to pray from the heart. And we carry that over into the times that we pray. You don't just pray on demand. You don't pray morning, noon, and night. That's not authentic. That's religious. I don't know about you, but if it's left up to me sometimes to pray when I feel like it, it's going to be very sparse. Because I get trapped in productivity. I've got a million things I need to do. I get distracted by entertainment. I, I can get really wrapped up in a lot of things in this world. I need faithful consistency. And I think about it in my relationship with my wife or my kids. You know, How much of a relationship would I really have if I just reached out to them when I needed something? And yet sometimes isn't that how we treat God? Sometimes you just have to pick up the phone and call and say, I just wanted to hear your voice. How are you doing? Just wanted to connect with you, spend time with you. That should carry over to our relationship with God. There's something else, though, about Daniel that I don't want us to lose sight of, is that we're not coming to this practice to see Daniel to get the how-to to pray, because we're not pulling away from this and saying, we need to pray in a specific direction. Jerusalem. Is that right? That way? East? Close enough? No, we're not talking about that. You could look at Daniel and you could say, well, he's got a posture. He's on his knees. Sure. And you can pray on your knees. You can pray standing up. You can pray sitting down. You can pray walking around. You can pray flat out on your face on the floor. Doesn't matter. You know why we're not talking about the formula? Because when we talk about what we see in Daniel, it's less about the formula and everything to do with a heart that's seeking God a heart that's passionate after God. And you know the only wrong way to pray is to not pray. That's it. There's no wrong way to pray. I mean, I get it. Sometimes we're like, but I'm angry and I don't want to pray right now. God can't handle my anger. Really? Have you read the Psalms? 
Break their teeth, O God. Ooh, that's a fun one, isn't it? It's in there. Look it up. Think that's a measured individual who's like, well, I've got myself together to pray now. No, it's somebody who's angry, agitated, says, God, I want you to take them out. God can handle your anger. What about your other emotions? Depression, maybe. Think God can't handle that? What about the psalm that says, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Well, you can't say that to God. Well, obviously you can. And God is big enough to take that. There's no right or wrong time to pray. But we need to learn, as the Jewish people knew, as Daniel knew, as the early church knew, following Jesus' resurrection, a set rhythm of prayer is really vital to ground us in a relationship with God. What happened? When did we lose this? When did we buy into this idea that spontaneity is the only true praying and heartfeltness? I don't know. But in a book I've been reading uh, by author Tyler Statton, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools is the title of the book. It's a good book. He says this. He says, When the church buddied up with political power, they lost a taste for prayer. Linking arms with power, church life has be- uh, had become diluted. The early Christians pray, placed a higher value on gathering to pray than we commonly do today, and they possessed a higher concentration of the Spirit's power than we commonly do today. The modern church is in desperate need of one of the church's most historic practices, one that has largely been forgotten in our time, a daily rhythm of prayer. We're going to come back to that because there's one more thing I want us to see about Daniel. A few chapters over from where we were, Daniel chapter 9 and 10, there's an interesting thing that happens. Daniel has this vision. For thousands of years, we've been trying to read newspapers and figure out what Daniel saw. We need to stop doing that. But Daniel has this disturbing vision and he begins to pray about it. He begins to, he's so disturbed that it says he stops eating. He stops, you know, basically doing anything. He's so bothered in his soul. And in Daniel chapter 10, we read kind of a resolution to what's going on. Something happens. It says, on the 24th day of the first month, as I, Daniel, was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen, belt of fine gold uh, uh, from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, face like lightning, eyes flaming torches, arms and legs like the golden gleam of burnished bronze. And his voice sounded like the multitude. It's a pretty frightening encounter that's going on here. And Daniel says, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I've been sent to you. And when he said to me, stand up, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God. When you started praying, Daniel, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me because I was detained with them, with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. Again, what a story, an incredible insight into our prayers. Yes, prayer has physical implications, but it is first and foremost a spiritual, uh, spiritual act. And what we see in prayer may not be the full story about what is going on. 
You ever been frustrated in prayer? You ever prayed and said, where's God? Why is my prayer not being answered? What is going on? This is exactly for us because prayer is spiritual warfare first and last. The apostle Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians where he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces. And I get it. Even reading this in our flattened existence, we go, oh, these buffoons. They're just so not as educated and enlightened as we are. Bull, that's garbage. They knew something about prayer that we didn't, that it is something that is taking place in the heavenly realms. Paul continues, he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. One of the greatest things our enemy can do is to convince us that prayer doesn't matter. Period. The end. It does matter. And there's power when you pray. It connects you with God. It opens our eyes to his movement in the world. And there's power when we come together and pray. When you have your Sunday school class and you pray, there's power. When we meet the first Wednesday of the month to pray, there's power. And it's not a big thing. The world is not shifting off its axis because of that. But it's the simple, daily, faithful, consistent praying that is changing things. So as I wrap up here, I ask, me first, what is your consistency in prayer? How disciplined are we in praying? Not for some legalistic obligation like the Pharisee we read about last week, but consistency because the God Almighty, the one who created you, knows you, loves you, desires your prayers, wants to hear from you, wants to speak to you, and is inviting you to join him in his work around us in the world. You know, several weeks ago, we gave out a liturgy of prayer to kind of help guide us in a prayer life. It's not a perfect model to follow, but a guide that hopefully brings about some consistency and hopefully some freedom when you pray. And today I want to challenge you in another way is can we find a consistent rhythm in our praying like Daniel? Throughout church history, this was called fixed hours praying or the daily office, a time in our day to stop, slow down, to be still and be with God. It's not where we take out the shopping list and, you know, God, I want you to do this. It's not turning to get something from God, but being with God. So I was reading this week, it says, people who have been willing to find consistent rhythm in prayer, like the daily office to be with God, have found it to be the key to creating a continual and easy familiarity with God's presence and the rest of the day. It is the rhythm of stopping that makes the practice of the presence of God a real possibility. Pastor Pete Scazzaro says, the great power in setting apart small units of time for morning, midday, and evening prayer infuses the rest of my day's activities, a deep sense of the sacred of God. All the time is his. The daily office practice consistently actually eliminates any division of the sacred and secular in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but I need a little bit more of the sacred in my life every day. I want that. And so to help me, I've down, you know, there's an app for everything. There's an app called Daily Prayer. 
You could set reminders on your phone, things like this, to remind us to stop, to pause. Doesn't have to be a long time, doesn't have to be an hour. Maybe it's a few seconds, maybe it's just a few minutes. But to refocus ourselves on Jesus, to see how he might be moving and working around us. I am confident if we commit ourselves to simple, daily consistency in prayer, we're going to find our perspective being changed. We're going to find our lives being changed, our families, our community being changed. And yes, possibly even the world begin to change, not because of a huge movement, but because of consistent daily faithfulness in praying to God. Let's pray.